the Wilson Center decided to, or the Asia program of the Wilson Center uh, proposed that I become a global fellow. As Sheholka said, I had the joy of being here for three months uh, last year. As she also said, uh, uh, I had a long innings uh, at the World Bank, and one of my World Bank colleagues, Ian Scott, uh, happens uh, to be here as well. Ian, thank you for being present. So Washington is a city that I know and love and exult in how it's got transformed uh, in the 30 plus years since I've known it. Um, so um, my interest uh, is actually uh, in the way India projects itself in the world. So I deliberately am not associated with a think tank uh, in New Delhi, uh, but I do have the association with the Wilson Center and with Bruegel, as she said. Uh, I have to say uh, that the, uh, I guess the title uh, is what these days is called clickbait, uh, New Delhi's plan for economic recovery, what is it and um, uh, can it work? Um, what I'm going to do, I've assumed that this is an interested but not geeky economic audience. And so, uh, you know, what I'm going to try and provide is a, a framework and a little bit of background to some of the debates around the Indian economy to leave plenty of time for Q&A about what this means for the Trump visit, which as Shioka said, it wasn't planned by me, but it couldn't have <laughs> come at a more opportune time. What it implies for India's role in the world, um, sort of position between uh, India, and uh, India and China, uh, the US and China, um, and um, really what, what the drivers are, the geopolitical, or the domestic political drivers of the economic choices that uh, Prime Minister Modi has been making. Uh, so if I have the time, but I don't want to squeeze the Q&A, uh, I had the following bullet points. Um, the, the, the goals of the talk and the main conclusion, so you know where I'm headed. Uh, India's economic slowdown, because that really uh, you know, is what was behind uh, the plan for economic recovery in the title. Diagnosis, credibility, and implications, because as I'll argue briefly, uh, there's a lot of name calling about where, why we are where we are. I'll provide my own view uh, without throwing a lot of numbers at you about why the slowdown has um, taken place. Now, uh, those of you who know India know that the uh, budget speech of the finance minister, which this year took place on the 1st of February, is the um, set piece where, a little bit like the Queen's speech in, uh, in the UK, where the government sets out its economic stall. It's come in for a lot of criticism. I'll give my own kind of take on it. Then, just briefly, uh, President Trump's visit, what unites, uh, what divides, and then to segue to uh, you know, the kind of political economy discussion that, that Shehoko says uh, the Wilson Center has set up to promote, you know, diplomacy, autonomy, economic security, I mean, how all of these are linked up with India's economic performance, uh, uh, particularly at this um, somewhat uh, um, transitional, uh, if not troubled time. Okay, so let me start by the context. And I think what I want to say is that uh, 
while we are talking about a short-run slowdown, there are two or three things about India that we need to, um, I think, keep in mind. One is that while the future, uh, the past is no guide to the future, the reality is that for pretty much the last quarter century, India has been amongst the fastest growing developing economies. And you know what that last quarter century has been about, not just the global financial crisis, but, uh, uh, but before that, the dot-com crisis, um, globalization. And I think I would draw from that the conclusion that there is an innate resilience in the institutions, of, including democratic politics of India. So one shouldn't believe that this uh, swallow mar uh, marks uh, the end of the summer, as it were. The second point is that actually, uh, and I'm not here you know, trying, I have no reason to, as it were, um, carry the water of the government, but the reality does remain that um, there are immense innate strengths that India has. The demography is the most important part of it uh, because it is still uh, a young country and that uh, it uh, stands to benefit from the demographic div dividend. But more importantly, now under uh, Prime Minister Modi, it's not actually uh, an economy showing great what macro imbalances. Inflation is more or less under control and uh, the balance of payments uh, are also, as measured by the current account deficit, is also under control. Um, and so this is not a Latin American, uh, a, an old Latin American type situation. Latin America has cleaned up its act with the arguable exception of Argentina. Um, and so what we're talking about is a growth slowdown in an environment which uh, has a lot of strengths uh, connected with it. That said, um, I think that there is considerable disagreement on the diagnosis of uh, what has led to the slowdown, and I think it's fair to say that nobody saw it coming. I mean, you know, the IMF, frankly, has egg on its face in terms of what um, the way it called uh, the economy, and indeed it was forced to say in the World Economic Outlook that was issued, um, uh, I guess, uh, just before Davos, that their main reason for downgrading global growth was because of an unanticipated slowdown in the Indian economy. So it's not that the optimism was only in government or in the Reserve Bank. I mean, this has been something that's poorly understood and poorly diagnosed. I think. Uh, there is, for those of you who follow the Indian economy closely, a lot of debate about whether India's fudging the numbers, whether India's numbers can be trusted. Uh, you know, I won't get into the doc doctrinal dis dis uh, disputes, but I would say that a government that has been prepared to disclose that the last quarter's growth was 4.5% is not willingly, as it were, fudging the numbers. However, it is the case that um, uh, 
because of sharp disinflation and uh, radical changes in the economy, uh, getting the right numbers I is a challenge, but it's a genuine challenge. I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fudging. So diagnosis, I don't think we uh, fully understand why there was a slowdown. Um, and credibility, I, I would trust the numbers. I think the important question is implications. So wh what, why does it matter if India doesn't pull out of the stall? And I think the answers are both are domestic, regional, and global. I think obviously what drives the Modi government is domestic. And uh, it is, I think, very, as it were, uh, injurious for the Modi government, which came in saying that its predecessor government, the Congress government, had presided over stagnation to, in a sense, uh, have uh, an, an economic performance which is uh, w inferior to, to, to its predecessor. And we can talk about this later, but arguably some of the other elements of the government's um, program have been to compensate for the fact that the economic performance has not been um, uh, stellar. Uh, the second point is regional, which is that it matters a lot to India whether it can close the gap with China and there was an expectation, uh, certainly till the global financial crisis and immediately after, that India's, uh, I would say almost till 2018 actually, that India's growth rate was sufficiently in a, ahead of China's, China was slowing down as a much richer country, that it could close the gap. A situation where India is seen to be uh, growing slowly, um, and the lead with, uh, or the gap with China is widening, is, um, is threatening geopolitically for India. And then finally, a lot of India's, if you like, heft in uh, global affairs is related not only to the fact that it is now an economy which in real terms is about the same size as that of the UK and France, but the expectation that even as measured at market prices, it was going to be one of the three important economies in the world. And I think that if there is any sense that the best years of economic growth are behind it, then that uh, will, uh, uh, will have significant um, implications. I see I've already spoken for 10 minutes, so let me use the remaining five to talk about um, uh, the other two areas, which are um, uh, the, Feb uh, the February budget, uh, what is the Mo Modi playbook, and President Trump's visit, and maybe a little bit about, um, uh, about economic diplomacy. So, as I've said, um, <coughs> the causes of the slowdown were, are poorly understood. I um, you know, believe it's important to uh, draw a distinction for an emerging market like India between su supply-side factors, which, uh, to again, to use a bit of jargon, are the factors 
that drive the growth potential of the economy, and demand side factors, or what are called cyclical factors, uh, uh, which determine how much of the, the demand is, uh, how much of the potential is realized. Now, in an emerging market like India, both of these are at work. I've introduced the distinction because, in my view, India's recent budget and, more generally, the, you know, the style of the Modi government has tended to be to resist uh, the uh, pressures for demand stimulus, fiscal stimulus, uh, with the uh, aspiration of trying to clean up issues on the supply side. Let me be a bit more specific about what I'm trying to say. Um, if you go back, uh, I, will I, I, don't, I don't mean to talk about demonetization right now. Uh, I, think it was an, I, I think it was an error by the Modi government. I don't know how many of you know about that. But I would say that following that error in 2016, one can see uh, as it were, a steady path by Modi to do two things. One is to continue to strengthen the social safety net um, and indeed fairly strong social policies uh, um, which are beginning to have effect. And I, uh, I, I, I can go into the details in the Q&A, but I'm talking about female education, I'm talking about health insurance, uh, I'm talking about sanitation, which is very important. So that has been, if you like, one set of drivers or one theme of Modi ever since, uh, and um, I see John, Jonathan is here, uh, as it were, the shift of fuels, uh, cooking fuels to LPG. So that has been a steady theme of, uh, of the Modi government, I would say back to 2014, and that was present in this budget. But I do want to point out, since this is a talk on economics, that another important theme, which I applaud, has been steady and systematic tax reform. It started by the cleaning up of the goods and services tax, and as somebody who worked on Brazil for, um, uh, for the World Bank um, 20 years ago, let me tell you that the political challenge of going from an, what we call an origin-based value-added tax to a destination-based value-added tax is something that Brazil had kept trying to do, but the interests of Sao Paulo and Rio prevented that. And to the credit of, as it were, bipartisan policy in India, uh, they got past the finishing line. There have been huge implementation issues, but let's not ignore the uh, vital importance of that. That was then followed uh, in, um, um, I guess, November or October of last year by a major reduction in corporate tax rates. And in the present budget, there was the beginnings of a cleanup and a move to uh, have a less distortionary income tax um, system. 
Now, all of this basically matters if what you're trying to do is to, as it, well, like, like in the US, um, is you're trying to alter the incentives uh, that are facing private actors uh, in, in, in the economy. So I would say that on the supply side and on the social side, uh, uh, there is a good story to be told. Let me now talk about what might ail the demand side, again, referring to this distinction between things that will affect potential growth and things that affect the here and now. Um, I would say that principle amongst those, or I would cite two, as it were, um, factors. One is that while I've mentioned that the Indian economy, or the, in the pattern of Indian economic growth is not, does not suffer um, uh, major imbalances, I think we've got a hideously unbalanced mix between fiscal and monetary policy. Fiscal policy, too loose. I mean, the government is now fessing up, which is a good thing, about its off-budget um, uh, liabilities, and we're talking about a consolidated fiscal deficit of 7 and 8 percent of GDP. So you've got 8 percent of GDP and uh, growth at 4.5 percent. So I'm with those who say, you know, time for a new mousetrap. Um, uh, so I, I, I don't basically support the plea by Indian business and the media that it's a time for even more fiscal stimulus. Maybe I'm, I've become conservative in my old age. So that is, I think, one of the reasons for the slowdown, because it's been accompanied in order to keep uh, inflation uh, under control by pretty tight monetary policy. And that tight monetary policy has been inappropriate at a time when, for a range of reasons we can go into, uh, the banks have been forced to reveal uh, or, or to acknowledge their bad debt problem. Ordinarily, you would, at, at a time, and that happened in the US with the savings and loan crisis, and again in 2008, when you've got a bad asset problem uh, in the banks, you ought to be in a position to ease monetary policy, but um, maybe they could, maybe they couldn't, but the fact of the matter is that the, uh, that the fiscal monetary mix uh, has been, I think, distorted. Uh, and, and secondly, because there's not been the equivalent of a TARP or a bad bank in India, the credit channel has been clogged, and that matters a lot to the, you know, the, 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 the engine of Indian economic growth, which is the medium and so small, um, medium and small um, uh, economies, uh, MSMEs. Okay, let me now just talk about a couple of things in the budget that were less uh, appealing to me and link it to President Trump's visit and also to what I might call the Modi playbook. What has been very disheartening to those of us who believe in uh, openness and um, uh, an open uh, and uh, openness to trade, openness to investment, a liberal economy, which was very much uh, the leitmotif of the uh, reforms in, 2000 and, uh, in 1992 and was sustained uh, through a range of governments, is that for the last three budgets, 
uh, and self-consciously so, the Modi government has chosen to raise tariffs. And it also uh, famously chose not to um, uh, sign up for the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, where it would have been in a trade agreement with China. And as Shehoko already said, trade issues are a major element in the tensions between uh, uh, India and the United States. And I just want to throw out for discussion, I don't have a very firm view on this, uh, on whether, you know, in a sense, uh, India, which, is, which has traditionally been somewhat protectionist, is learning the wrong lessons from some combination of China and the United States, you know, which is to say that if you want to be a muscular industrial power, being a goody-goody uh, two-shoes doesn't hack it, okay? I think they're wrong, but uh, what I would say is that in a world where the Washington consensus, neoliberalism are all up for grabs, it's not surprising to me that ideologues behind the Modi government may say, look, you know, this is the way to vulnerability. We need to, as it were, um, uh, we need to um, rise behind tariff barriers. So um, I, uh, I think how India and other, emer other G20 emerging markets like Brazil, et cetera, start to react to deglobalization, I think is one of the issues uh, that, uh, uh, that where India is today raises. Um, I think I leave it at that, Shehoka. I think I've exceeded my time and leave it to your expert chairmanship. Yeah, no, um, th thank you so much, Sumang, for starting a really great conversation. I just wanna go back um, before I opened um, the floor to your comment about RCEP, the Regional Economic um, uh, Comprehensive Economic Partnership Trade Agreement and India really disappointing the other member countries um, by, by really not taking an aggressive stance and really kind of shying away from it. It hasn't officially said no, not yet. It's effectively said no, but it hasn't officially said no yet. But on the one hand, yes, this is a very big strategic geopolitically um, big mistake on the part of India, um, especially from a US perspective, uh, because it is not um, joining forces with countries that could really encourage China to follow the rules of law. And this is one of the very few areas where countries are kind of working together for a larger multilateral coordinated effort to for, for governance as much as for trade relations. But at the same time, if you look at it simply from a domestic um, perspective from India, if you join RCEP, then you are exposing yourself from greater competition to China. And the economy, especially now, if it is showing signs of weakness, whether it's a sustained weakness or not, we can debate about it. But if India were to join RCEP right now, that vulnerability would be exacerbated. And so is it not a wise economic as well as domestic political move for India not to be part of RCEP? And if that is the case, or if that is not the case, I mean, what kind of role can India play in ensuring 
system that it is um, a liberal, open market for the future? Um, well, Shioko, I mean, uh, again, um, with respect to both RCEP and with respect to US-India trade, you know, uh, it's all a question of what you pick up from leaks and this and that. So um, uh, what's definitive is just the statements that were made by Modi and Piyush Goyal when they decided to walk out in Bangkok, and then what we're hearing from some of the other uh, participants. Uh, so I'll give you my interpretation, both of uh, the, the motivations and what might happen next. Um, I think India understood that it had a certain amount of leverage with the other RCEP partners, and I mean, do you want to um, do you want me to explain to to the room what RCEP was, or do, should we assume that people know, or, or what? Um, so RCEP is basically a trade agreement for East Asia that includes uh, all the countries that already had tra uh, free trade agreements with ASEAN, okay. Uh, and that's basically the ASEAN 10 and another six countries. But it would have been the first structure where Japan, China, Korea, India would all have been negotiating with each other. And so it's a pretty big deal, I think. Uh, okay, so the first point is that I think India wanted to play hard to get. Secondly, it was coming at a difficult political time where they were losing state elections. Thirdly, uh, you know, this business, now that we're getting into kind of bilateral deals, particularly with the United States, I'm sure the Indian authorities are worried about I gave at the office, the I gave at the office phenomenon. That, you know, what you concede in RCEP then becomes the, as it were, the baseline for what you have to grant, particularly, say, in dairy, to the United States. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the relationship with the US, in every kind of way, matters much, much more to India than the relationship with ASEAN plus six, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, those of us who believe that in, and let me make a final point, which I picked up uh, on the conference circuit in East Asia, I mean, there were people there who are great fans of the Belt and Road Initiative saying, oh, yes, RCEP, that's the trade deal to underpin the Belt and Road Initiative. I can't think of anything that would make Indian negotiators and politicians run faster than to say what we are doing is signing up to the, as it were, the economic, um, as it were, uh, support for the BRI, because India, as you know, has determined, rightly or wrongly, that it doesn't want to be part of the BRI. So, um, I accept, I believe that uh, the main reason for India to join RCEP is not particularly with respect to its trading partners, but it is to provide the kind of stability in its own trade regime that WTO-bound tariffs have up till now. But I think that since we are now in a world where undertaking bilateral negotiations with the United States is both so important and so fickle, uh, each country is having to make its 
own judgments about where it wants to bind before it has a deal with the United States. Yeah. Is that persuasive to you no, or not? That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Then the next question will be, okay, so Trump is going to India next week. There's discussion about this Howdy Modi um, rally will be followed up by a Namaste Trump event at a cricket ground in, in India as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of media attention to it. But from Modi's perspective, what would he see as a successful outcome from the bilateral meeting? Are we talking simply about a, a small trade deal that kind of gives in um, back the GSP uh, standing to India? Or, or can do we want something bigger than that for Modi to say that we have a strong relationship with the United States now? I mean, others in the room may disagree, uh, but I do think this is very much about reciprocal atmospherics in the way that Howdy Modi was uh, in Houston, and uh, this would be for Donald Trump, uh, particularly with respect to Gujarati voters in some swing states, most importantly, Texas. That said, you know, and I don't follow security issues uh, as closely as you do, but a big difference between, as it were, the slightly left of center policies of um, the predecessor Congress government and of um, uh, of the uh, UPA uh, of the NDA led by uh, Modi is has been a robust willingness to embrace the United States. Okay, and um, you know. I think that to signal, in each side to signal to their bureaucracies that look, there is a kind of bond at the leader level that you need to take account um, you know, in the down and dirty negotiations, I think is, is important. Um, and let's be clear, I mean, India is, uh, very hamstrung by, as it were, China on its border, China's support for Pakistan. And uh, I think that for Modi to keep demonstrating to the Indian population, who love him, by the way, I mean, whatever may be the economic outcome, his personal approval ratings are terrific, that look, you know, we count for something in the world um, and um, um, we will have the U.S. in our corner um, if you know things really get ugly. So m that's my judgment. Okay. Now the question is, um, uh, what might uh, be outcomes? Um, trade is certainly. Um, you know, where the greatest heat had, has been, but uh, there are also issues with uh, pharma, issues with data. Um, am I expecting any of this to be, I mean, I don't think that this is that kind of a state visit. I, am un I understand that because of some of the f uh, uh, features in the budget uh, that even some of the CAOs are not now uh, willing uh, to travel, um, 
So I frankly can't say. I mean, I think that it would be seen as, uh, you know, uh, unsuccessful if there wasn't uh, some outcome, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, so I think it's really being driven much more by the domestic political agenda of those countries. But there may be people here who are closer to uh, events um, uh, who, who see it differently. Well, you've been very patient. Um, we are recording this, um, and we do have a microphone. So if you could wait, um, and also um, give your name and affiliation as well. Um, Tom Timberg, uh, consultant. Um, uh, thank you for a masterful um, account, and in your particular, your demand side, supply side difference seems mm -hmm. to me it might well be the basis for an interesting article at some point in a more general state. Um, but of course, the way that the slowdown has been, one one of the manifestations is a slowdown in business investment, and so the question obviously becomes why. And you mentioned the that overhang, but w let me ask you about two or three other possibilities. I'll give one, two, three. Uh, one is the possibility that there were certain sectors, uh, auto, auto parts, uh, um, IT, et cetera, and that they reached a, a certain point where for a combination of problems of demand and supply, that is the availability of uh, IT personnel, et cetera, they had reached a point of, of, if you will, declining returns, and somebody's going to have to find some other uh, areas. And the second possibility is that uh, sort of, if you will, the, a Trump-Modi strategy, which has worked well for Modi and Gujarat, et cetera, of <coughs> forget about your general policy. You come to me. You tell me what your problems are. I will deal with them, and he does. And so he's very... For, for people who can get access to him, he's a very popular um, uh, government that that itself has some limits and that what you need to do is move towards something that can be, if you will, run on a more decentralized basis. Uh, question, one question at a time, as you like. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, so uh, I would say that one of the respects in which India arguably has gone backward, um, which frankly one might have been a bit more optimistic on uh, given that this is no longer a coalition government, is policy certainty and policy stability. What do I mean by that? That, you know, uh, in the coalition governments uh, led by Vajpayee and then led by uh, Manmohan Singh uh, with Sonia Gandhi heading the political party, there was always the argument that you needed to placate this member of the uh, coalition, that member of the coalition, and that's why you came up with um, zany policies. This um, is not an excuse that one can put forward. But, you know, that said, I think that in a 
misguided demonstration of economic sovereignty. I mean, the idea is, look, we are free to do what we want to do at any time. And particularly if you've changed the rules on trade policy, you lay yourself open to the kind of lobbying that we thought we'd gotten away from um, uh, as part of the liberalization. This is my response to your question about the investment certainty. So a number of things are going on at the same time. How long it would take them to clear up, I don't know, but uh, a close friend of mine, Arvind Virmani, has talked about the so-called J-curve of institutional reform, indicating that attempting to improve tax compliance, attempting to improve, to reduce corruption, uh, all of these, and the, you know, uh, the chapter and verse on each of these things, all of these represent changes in the established rules of behavior, and indeed demonetization was it intended to do that as well. And you know, as you know, the J-curve traditionally is used to describe the time it takes for an, uh, a devaluation to take, in, take effect. So he is arguing, and there are others as well. Um, uh, what's his name? Mark, um, uh, one of the, the people in Hong Kong who follows the uh, Indian economy. I mean, there are people who do believe that what we are experiencing right now is uh, fairly important resets of the rules of the game, which when uh, joined with the credit crunch, uh, perhaps goes some distance to explaining the investment slowdown. Uh, let me, so uh, there's time for others, let me make a point that um, Al Harberger, who used to be at Chicago and then at UCLA, made about um, econ fast growing economies. He says, you know, uh, it's a mistake to think that uh, an economy that grows year after year at eight, nine percent is the same economy. No, it's a very, very different economy. And the image that he uh, put forward was, you know, you see a swan gliding s in a stately fashion on a lake, but below there's all this paddling going on. So, um, you know, there has to be creative destruction at the same time as, as uh, creation, and indeed, you know, uh, as a Hindu, we know that there's no creation without destruction. And the destruction bit has really got clogged in India because of the, you know, if you like, uh, the promises of, of socialism. We have not had an effective bankruptcy law. We uh, uh, don't have good mechanisms for reallocating capital. So there's a constant emphasis on, as it were, fixing what is broke rather than, you know, sort of, so we're not good at abandonment. So um, that said, I think people would argue and have argued that compared with the, with the major industries that uh, came up in the 2000s, in the first year, uh, years of the century, IT, pharma, auto parts, you know, the second decade has been sterile for some reason. So there are issues uh, in the 
big scale corporate sector. But I don't know how many of you read the Financial Times, but uh, there's, they have a columnist, Henny Sender, who has been talking about the amazing fizz in the startup space, in the technology space, in fintech. So uh, there is that, but it's not at scale just yet. Manufacturing is incredibly important, and the government. Manufacturing is incredible. Oh, Denise Leonard, OHSL. Um, um, manufacturing is incredibly important for job creation. The government has suggested that it wants to move from I think it's fifteen percent GDP to twenty-five percent and create a hundred million jobs. Um, manufacturing has tended in the last ten years to look at primarily the domestic market rather than the um, export market. And um, in order to make a more sustainable growth pattern, I would have thought export is equally important. And secondly, that now that there's been these problems in China um, and a lot of turbulence in the world trade generally, that this would be an opportunity for India. And I pick up on the last statement you just made about there are sectors where it makes sense for India to become an exporter in manufactured goods, which they don't seem to be picking up. And well, um, uh, I can't disagree with you. And to some extent, this comes back to, as it were, cherry-picking aspects of the so-called the Chinese model, which may be uh, inappropriate. So there is a belief uh, among some elements of, uh, uh, of the commentariat that China's success was some combination of openness to FDI, insistence on joint ventures, and not just China, by the way, Korea, China, Japan, that really uh, the notion that all of this took place uh, under completely free trade is an erroneous um, interpretation of history. Um, so one explanation could be uh, for, for um, what the government is up to, but that's not quite your question. Your question is, um, uh, you know, what they should be up to, is that, look, that's what we're trying to do. And what is certainly the case is that uh, a very important part of the success of not just China, but much of ASEAN, um, Malaysia for sure, Thailand for sure, uh, was, yes, policies, but also... Um, good infrastructure. And I th while India's infrastructure remains um, deplorable, it's a lot less deplorable than it ha had been. I think um, I hear too often, uh, let me step back um, 
and make the following point that I wanted to make in my remarks. You know, if you are willing, if you wish to have a liberal private sector driven economy, then there's a limit to, as it were, the uh, shape of that economy that you can determine. I mean, we did not set out to have a vibrant services economy. We've been aiming for a vibrant manufacturing economy since 1956. But some combination of resource endowments, intelligence, um, infrastructure, etc., has meant that we are, you know, world beaters in pharma, auto parts, and that's what, you know, that's what a market economy throws up. Similarly, as I said in my remarks, our overall balance of payments is pretty solid. Now, if we think that the Trump administration is barking up the wrong tree in targeting bilateral trade deficits, then, um, you know, we should be um, a little bit more, if you like, uh, moderate in complaining about our tra trade deficit with China, which has really been the driver of so much rhetoric um, in, in, in India. Um, so yes, I mean, industrial policy is having a rebirth around the world. Um, I'm not persuaded that the Chinas and the Japans and the Koreas succeeded because of their industrial policy, maybe despite it. But, um, you know, uh, it is what it is. We've been a fast-growing economy. Manufacturing has stayed, stayed stubbornly where it was. And if we push domestic manufacturing excessively, as we're trying to do right now with um, solar panels or with um, 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 power generation, insisting that it be um, produced domestically, that ends up adding to costs in the domestic economy. So, you know, there, there's an innate logic on whether you have all the tools to execute an industrial policy or whether you're going to trust the market. May I come back to the point that Tom made, which uh, I agreed with, uh, which was, uh, and I would link it up with Denise's point in the following way, you know, which is that a lot of the DNA of the Modi uh, crew was uh, shaped in the context of a state government, which was really kind of itemized problem solving. And, you know, just ask yourself the question that uh, would a UK or a France, because those are, that's the comparable size of economy, work? if everybody had to go lobbying Boris Johnson? And, you know, the answer to that is probably not, or Macron. Uh, so I think that it was a slow learning for the previous government, the Congress government, about how and when you need to work through policy rather than programs and projects. I think we're still on the learning curve with uh, with this government. I don't know if that was your point, but that would be my reaction.
follow up. Um, I'm going to try and answer the question. Uh, let me follow up um, on the question about opportunities coming as a result of China's slowdown. So we see, for instance, with the growing U.S.-China trade tensions, that there has been this exodus of capital from China back to Taiwan or to Southeast Asian countries. We haven't really seen that flow going into India. Um, is this a lost opportunity that India really should be trying to court? Or is this something that really does not um, play to um, India's longer term strengths and, and want either because it would be for cheaper manufacturing? Shoko, I would say that we want to will the ends without willing the means, okay? I mean, I don't think there's a great mystery about what you need to do to become a part of global value chains. Uh, but right now, I guess, India is exulting in the fact that it is not as dependent on, as it were, global value chains that are tied up with China. And I don't know whether there was a national security element to this, but certainly there was a stage at which, uh, I would say, uh, certainly up to the global financial crisis, maybe after that, where the economies of Southeast A of Asia really got reshaped to providing intermediates to, uh, to the Chinese machine. And you know, we are seeing a lot of weaponization of economic interdependence, uh, both in goods and in services. And, you know, uh, uh, this may just be happenstance, but at least there's not that kind of Chinese leverage over India as there is over the Philippines or Malaysia, or you shut off uh, tourism to Thailand or whatever. So I, I, I don't know that that was conscious policy, but that's the outcome. I think something we don't think about and you know, Pakistan is obviously the, the, the big thorn, is what might constitute a, a global value chain system around the Indian economy going forward, and what is the role of South Asia? And what is it that would need to be the trade and infrastructure architecture that would support that? And you know, given India's, you know, arrogance, auteur, whatever you want to call it, I think that is a much more, if you like, attractive vision, which is being supported by, you know, the reaching out to BIMSTEC, uh, all of the infrastructure. As I say, you know, there is this narrative out there that China is sewing up the region uh, in the way that Britain did in the imperial period with Belt and Road, you know, so in the way that the Suez Canal was uh, was uh, was the channel for um, for the for uh, Victorian Britain, Belt and Road is the way in which uh, China is going to bind ASEAN to it, and you know, I'm, India would probably, you know, not want to change the game rather than playing that game. Okay, but I, I I'm I'm putting, as it were, an interpretation on actions that is not supported by formal doctrine. I'm just saying that, um, you know, if you want, and this was going to be the last part of my talk, but that if you want, uh, if you like, economic security and autonomy, then uh, exactly how that links up with 
being part of global value chains is something that entails kind of deep thought, and the deep thought may be going on, but this is a more opaque government than some of its predecessors. So, uh, I'm, yeah, uh, it's a question of watch what they do, not what they say. Tom again, yeah. Tom Timberg again, if there are not other people. Because I have, out, as usual, lots of questions. The only question is other people should have a chance. Um, you've, one of the nice things about this talk is it's been, if you will, nonpartisan. But let me ask you a couple of sort of political questions that, that related. One is with the departure of, Mr. Uh, of Professor Subramaniam and uh, uh, Jaitley, et cetera, different reasons, but um, uh, a lot of people feel that what's happened politically is that there has been a shift in the government toward a more mm, autarkic position, let's say, connected with uh, um, Professor Guramurti, et cetera. First place, would you agree that that has been the case? And the next question, would would some of the recent uh, electoral reverses in places like Delhi lead perhaps to some correction in that? Um, look, um, Tom, you're a historian of India, and uh, you you know you know that these debates have raged for a century, right? And there's no reason to think that the debates are any more resolved within the bosom of the BJP than they were in the bosom of Swatantra or Congress or whatever. So India has always had this tension between self-sufficiency, it may even come from Gandhi, and as it were, engagement with the rest of the world. And you know, let's remind ourselves that Modi and Amit Shah and you know, many of their bureaucrats are from the most cosmopolitan, globalized part of India, which is Gujarat. Okay, so I mean, these people do have global trade and global engagement um, in their DNA, I would say. Uh, what we do find is an apparent lack of coherence between statements from one side and the other. If you read, for example, the speech, on, on, yeah, the address that the present external affairs minister, uh, Jay Shankar, gave, uh, well, he was wandering around most of the think tanks in town um, not so long ago, but uh, his most definitive articulation of, Indi of the link between India's uh, security doctrine and its economic policies was uh, a talk he gave gave uh, a lecture he gave to the Indian Express. And you know that is about as robust a defense of the importance for India of a liberal global economic order as you would hope to find. Okay? Now, uh, but it is all within the framework that you know, the old verities no longer apply. The ground is shifting under our feet. So what we need to be is flexible and nimble. Um, and then the question becomes, uh, is, that what they, is that what we see? 
or is what we see as it were the um, the dominance of a particular point of view and I'm not prepared to call that frankly one way or the other so I, my judgment would be that there are both these tendencies and uh, they play out what I would say though is that it is clear that in a way it wasn't with Manmohan Singh that the buck stops with the Prime Minister so I would not you know, judge that they're rogue elements. Uh, that, so this is a, it's a coordinated but not a coherent, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, Paige, we've actually reached the end of our time. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, I know we'll be looking at the, the summit meeting next week, but this is a longer term issue of measuring the resilience and looking at the, um, the path forward for India's continued growth. So um, thank you all very much for joining us today. And if you could join me in, in thanking Suman for making the trip to the Wilson Center, I would appreciate it greatly. And thank thanks to you, Sherokar. And thanks to you all for coming. I appreciate your being here.